And turn your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. Revelation 12, verse 1. We're in a series on strength for today, hope for tomorrow. And we come to a rather interesting story in chapter 12. Revelation 12, verse 1, and this is the Word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. Another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and she fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. And then join me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we're so glad this morning that we do have your word this morning. We have the sacrament as well. And so we're asking for your Holy Spirit's help. Uh, Father, to grasp what you're saying here to us this morning. Father, to enable us to understand it, Lord, to apply it. Father, to live it out for the sake of your name. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In Revelation, we often speak of numbers, so let me ask you a number this morning. The number is 97. So what does that represent to us today? I thought the sermon title would give it to you. That's the number of shopping days till Christmas, folks. <laughs> All right? Um, uh, because we have in our text today a picture of Christmas painted for us. Uh, I suspect it's not one you've ever seen on a Christmas card, certainly not from Dayspring or even Hallmark. Uh, uh, there are no donkeys, there's no mangers, there's no shepherds, um, and it's not even a silent night. Uh, Mark Buchanan wrote that he once used this text for his Christmas Eve service. So he said with a room full of small children uh, and all sorts of guests from the community, uh, he quickly saw their uh, horror with a story that sounded more like Jurassic Park or Freddy Krueger than a little town of Bethlehem. So I decided not to save this for Christmas Eve. All right? Uh, we don't want to scare you one this morning, but we do want to see that this story uh, is one amazing picture that's meant to impress on us the unseen battle that rages in our universe. And behind the Chronicles of Narnia, we have the mind of C.S. Lewis. Uh, behind Star Wars, there was George Lucas. Behind The Lord of the Rings, Tolkien. Uh, behind Harry Potter, there's, there's J.K. Rowling. Uh, but I dare say none of them could have imagined this graphic and bizarre God-given scene described in our text today that really lies behind all the pages of history. So hold that thought for a moment. Um, our story of Revelation does leave us with a lot of questions. You know, if God's going to triumph, why does he continue to allow pain and suffering? And in his book on Revelation, Dennis Johnson hits us with some great questions at this point, sort of summarize them. Uh, why does the church endure social ostracism, economic sanctions, persecution, imprisonment, martyrdom? Why do churches struggle with a mixture of, of truth and error, uh, purity and compromise, 
love and indifference? Why do wars and fires and famines rage if indeed King Jesus is on his throne and he's taking God's plan for the ages to carry out? Why the conflict, the hurt, the pain if the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ? Why does the world hate us so much? Why is there so much crime and disregard for human life? So we're beginning a new section here in Revelation. We're going behind the scenes of history to see the the core problem of evil. So the next three chapters help us understand Ephesians 6 more, the reality of the spiritual battle that we face. There are pictures here, for the most part, that uh, point to spiritual realities uh, behind uh, the, the history. Do you care to guess how many pictures we'll see? Seven. Good. I thought you'd get that. All right, seven. Uh, so John pulls back the veil that separates, in a sense, heaven and earth, and he shows us that the tribulation that believers face is part of the war that's taking place around us in the spiritual world. And so this first picture is really an overview. It's the broad view. It shows us the Christmas story. Christmas like we don't like to think about it, perhaps. So let's go to the text and literally let's see it. First, there's a new sign in heaven. It's a woman, uh, an ideal picture. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. All right, it's called a great sign. Uh, In other words, this is not something intended for a, a literal interpretation. It's symbolic. And so the question obviously is, what does this woman represent? I mean, who's she supposed to be? Now we'll read you, you immediately think of Joseph's dream in Genesis 37 with uh, uh, the 11 stars and the sun and the moon bowing down to him, representing his brothers, uh, his mother, his father. So there are those who suggest that uh, this represents Old Testament Israel, uh, the one from whom Messiah comes. It's also not a stretch, at least the beginning to think, think of Mary. Uh, indeed, by the 4th century, people were identifying this with Mary. Of course, there's no record of Mary fleeing to the wilderness, and that would not seem to fit in. During the Middle Ages, they moved from Mary to call it the church. Uh, and, and so, most likely, this woman represents God's covenant community, both the Old Testament uh, and the New Testament. In that sense, this woman is is what we have professed this morning, the Catholic Church, the universal church. It's made up of all believers from the time of Adam until Christ comes again. Uh, All believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, and, And she's wearing here the crown of victory because the church is part of the winning team. As Hendrickson put it, she's clothed with the sun. She's glorious and exalted. The moon under her feet shows her great dominion. So what's the situation? Well, it says she's pregnant uh, and in great birth pains. And those pains represent the constant attacks on the Old Testament Israel to stop birth of Messiah. Uh, Threats to the Messianic line in the Old Testament that Satan sparked to stop the birth of of the offspring of Eve, who would defeat him. So you had Cain kill Abel. 
Do you have Pharaoh killing all the male baby boys of the Jews in Egypt? You have Saul trying to kill David. On Wednesday nights we've been studying Esther and, and, and Haman is plotting the execution of all the Jews. Um, but Satan failed. God persevered through the pain. Why? Well, see, God's protective hand on his people, God's purpose uh, that he has. And it's protection because we see a second sign here. And while the church is called a great sign, notice this one is not. He's not called a great sign. Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, this is a, a truly gruesome scene. Again, it it's, doesn't sound like the stable in Bethlehem we like to think about for sure. I've checked out several nativity sets, and I've yet to find a great red dragon in any of them. All right? Uh, and after all, a, a fiery red dragon, that's a, a sign of, of warfare, of evil. Remember the horse back in chapter 6. The dragon has seven heads, ten horns. A crown on each head. This is not puff, all right? Uh, and, and they represent, numbers represent completeness, power, authority. Certainly your mind will go back to the dragon, the, the beast in, Revel, in the book of Daniel. You can go back and check that out later. As we see, we will see next week down in verse 9. This dragon is directly identified with Satan. That's who it is. It's Satan himself. So here's the situation. The dragon Satan has such power that his massive tail can sweep a third of the stars from the sky to the planet Earth. Now some people look at that and they think that describes uh, Satan's fall from heaven when he, when he tried to rebel against God. And that's possible. Others think it simply refers to Christ's defeat of Satan at the cross. But I would say more likely it's, it simply displays God's attack, or rather Satan's attack on God's created order. Bring, he, he seeks to bring chaos and opposition to God. He makes war on the woman and the child. But whatever view is correct, the point's obvious. The dragon has destruction on his mind. Satan's ultimate goal is to sabotage the redemptive plan of God. In Jesus Christ. So as the woman goes into labor, the dragon ominously stands over her, determined to devour the vulnerable child the moment he's born. Now from the beginning of Jesus' life, Satan was determined to devour Jesus. Remember God said in Genesis 3 that enmity would exist between the serpent and the woman and her seed. And we've seen that played out through history. So immediately think of Herod's attempt to kill the infant Jesus. Such that he killed all the male babies uh, in and around Bethlehem in order to try to kill the Christ child. Satan again tried to kill Jesus at the temptation. He tried to use the crowd in Nazareth to kill Jesus. They had full intentions of doing so. Then ultimately is the culmination in the crucifixion. 
when he thinks he won. So we need to realize here that the real battle is spiritual that we fight. It's not nuclear. It's not green. It's not political. Our hope's not the balanced ballot box of the courts. Our hope's not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is in God and in His child alone. Uh, So what's the result? She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to the throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nurtured for 1260 days. So the woman gives birth to a baby boy, but clearly no ordinary child. Rather, this is Messiah. John's quoting from from Psalm 2 here, that he'll rule the nations with a rod of iron. This is the preexistent Word of God, who was with God and was God. This is he who became flesh and dwelt among us, the one whose glory we beheld. This is the mortal enemy of the dragon and the dragon's grip on the kingdoms of this world. And so Christ comes to birth earth as, as a baby. And he's placed in the care of two mere mortals, Joseph and Mary. So the dragon, Satan, sees the opportunity to devour the child and win the war. Uh, as, as one person phrased the question, I mean, how's an exhausted woman who's just given birth to a helpless baby stand up against a dragon who can knock stars from the sky? But then we read the child's caught up to be with God in his throne. Now, what's that mean? Essentially, before Satan can act, Jesus is born. Jesus lives a sinless life. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus rises from the dead. And Jesus ascends into heaven to the right hand of the Father. At the same time, the woman, the people of God, the church, escapes into the wilderness. And there God takes care of her. Now notice it's the same time frame we keep seeing over and over again. 1260 days. In other words, it's a fixed, but it's a limited time period. God takes care of her. God provides for her. And so this first picture is the, uh, a microcosm of history. It's a condensation of the gospel story from Jesus' birth to his resurrection and ascension. It's a story about the protection, the provision for the church, even while the child Messiah reigns from his throne in heaven. Now, why the wilderness? Why do God's people go there? Well, we'll say more about it next week, but essentially, Satan wants to turn his attention from Jesus because he's ascended into heaven to the church here on earth. That's the focus of his attacks. And remember, Israel's in the wilderness for 40 years as God provided for them. Uh, We know Moses fled to the wilderness for God to protect him. Uh, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, all at times went to the wilderness You see, it's in the desert, it's in the wilderness, where we learn we must depend upon God for our food, for our provision, for our protection. 
And again, the number 1260 comes up to half of the seven. The full number is seven. Half of that's 1260, days. It means a limited period of time. Same amount of time as we saw for the ministry of the witnesses, which is the church, and for the Gentiles to trample the church as well. So what about us? In 97 days, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And now I hope it's an annual reminder of you, for you of the cosmic battle uh, that's behind every page of human history. So you got time to find or make Revelation 12 cards and wrapping paper uh, to, uh, to uh, use as we anticipate uh, the celebration of Christ's first coming and waiting on His second coming. But as we wait, we need strength for today. We need hope for tomorrow in our spiritual pilgrimage through this world. And this passage provides that strength, though, because it reminds us then of several things. That as the battle rages won, we are being protected and provided for spiritually by God in the wilderness. Second, we have hope because we know, we know Satan ultimately loses. It's guaranteed here. And we have perspective that behind all the evil in our country today, behind all the headlines, remember what we find is a highly motivated rebel, the great deceiver who is self-deceived, one who is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, one who came down to Georgia and lost the fiddle contest, because he's the ultimate loser. Alright? And so today, the first Christmas has come. And Satan lost. He could do nothing to stop it. The cross is Satan's, not Satan's triumph as he thought it would be, but God's triumph. So for that, we have another picture this morning, and it's the Lord's table. We're told God prepares the table for us in the presence of our enemies. It's a true refuge. And notice if you drop down to verse 9, it says, The church triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb, which points to the cross. And so we invite all who are believers in Lord Jesus Christ, who are members of good standing of an evangelical church, to come today to this table. Um, those of you who are not yet believers, we're so glad you're here. Um, uh, but the Lord himself asks you in his word not to partake of the supper. Rather... Uh, let the elements pass and, and follow the suggestions in the worship guide and, and, and let us know how we can share with you uh, about His love. We want you to know the triumphant Christ because you see Satan's determination. So we want to point you to the cross, to the blood of the Lamb, to the love of God. Likewise, children not yet met with the session are asked to let the elements pass and see me. I have another class soon if you desire to partake. Uh, Believers, we're reminded today at this table why we're safe in the wilderness. We are safe because Christ died for us. And He made us to be His own people. He is a mighty fortress who watches over us. And so this table gives us strength to live the life He calls us to. To walk by His Word in dependence on the Holy Spirit. Power. But then let me say, we must be sure we do not overlook Satan's tactic, uh, tactics or his determination. 
And I'm just going to say, if somehow you don't think Satan's a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour, then you're probably not taking sin very seriously. And you don't want to. And friends, that's spiritual danger. And if that's the case, then maybe not take the Lord's Supper today. Take time to repent of, of indifference towards the things of God. Now let's each take a moment to uh, confess our sins before holy God. Father, we acknowledge that uh, we are sinners in your side who deserve your displeasure, your punishment, your wrath. But Christ has taken that for us at the cross. So, Father, we confess our sins and we believe that what Christ did uh, is for us. So, Father, we thank you that as we confess, Lord, that you forgive us. Lord, you cleanse us and you remind us that we're yours and that you'll pick us up when we fall. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.